You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh-oh, guess what day it is. Guess what day it is. Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We are going back to the movies tonight, and we are going to be looking at Jurassic World Dominion. Dinosaurs, folks. We got dinosaurs. This is going to be so much fun. I hope. It's going to be very interesting to talk about this one. Uh, It's the sixth movie in the Jurassic World, Jurassic Park saga world, whatever, but you know, it's going to be very interesting to talk about. And we got a great crew here. And of course this man, he's not Jurassic. He's Mr. Modern himself, Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. So is Jurassic world scary in the dark? (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Just like, uh, just like Malcolm says, uh, life finds a way. We'll see if, we'll see if this, uh, this franchise still has some life in it. It'll be very interesting to see what happens and uh, with it and what everyone's opinions are on it. But, of course, we want to hear from you at home. Please write us feedback at earthstation1.com. Did you guys enjoy this film? Did you guys not? You know, did you enjoy seeing the dinosaurs? Did you enjoy seeing the mix of the old crew and the new crew? There's a lot to talk about, and it's going to be very interesting to hear what people's reactions are to this. But, of course, you know, if you liked it, you know, let us know. Like we said, feedback at earthstation1.com. Or if you want, subscribe to our show or leave feedback. It's even better. You know, both are great because, you know, when you subscribe, you get our updates and everything. But, you know, feedback always lets us know how we're doing. So five stars, as always, is great. You know, five sarcastic stars. If you don't like it, you know, that's all it takes is five. It doesn't take any number less than that. So it's a good thing with that. So definitely, you can find us up on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcast, anywhere fine podcasts are found. ESO is there. Or Station One is there. Or Station Who, the Dragon Con Report. So we got a lot of good stuff coming your way. And you could help subscribe. And it's awesome if you can. Also, as Always, as we like to say, we also want to do a big shout out to our friends over at Tifosi Optics. Tifosi Optics is a great sunglass company located here in Georgia, and they are the, one of our favorite sponsors because you know what? We love sunglasses. I love being outside in the summertime, if going to the beach or going to a park, going on a hike, or even just hanging out in the backyard. I need a pair of sunglasses. My eyes are real sensitive to light. And when you wear a pair of Tifosi sunglasses, you know what? You feel really cool. You really, really do. And because, you know, I got to pick my own colors, got to pick my own frames. You know what? It's pretty cool. Different styles, different colors. Tifosi Optics has it. Definitely check out TifosiOptical.com or TifosiOptics.com. Both work. And you know what? It's a way of saying thank you. You can get a 10 percent discount that's right not 10 percent off your whole one pair of glasses 10 percent off your whole order that's not bad so it's pretty cool so check it out folks tofosioptics.com and tell them earth station one sent you 
And now we're here with new friend of the show, Tom Rash, who is an amazing content creator. Welcome to Earth Station One. I appreciate it, guys. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Welcome to the station. Uh, for those people who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, uh, I've drawn for Marvel Comics, and I've worked as a concept artist for video games and film projects. And my current focus is uh, as a content creator, bringing new IP into the market um, and characters that actually I created as a child in my teens and so forth that I've been finally getting off the ground as as comics and um, movie projects, et cetera. Wow. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Um, when did you get sort of, uh, how early of an age were you sort of bit by the, shall we say, storytelling bug? Well, I would say, you know, in a way, like drawing for kids is kind of the beginning. That's sort of the initial foundation for storytelling, mm-hmm. whether or not they realize it. Uh, my mom, who's a wonderful artist, my mom, Maggie, uh, was my first inspiration ever pick up a pencil and start doodling. I started copying her pictures I remember her doing um, pictures of my dad when they started dating and then uh, like historical figures like JFK. Um, But then of course, you know, as I got into like kindergarten and grade school, you know, I always had like um, a storyline. I would draw like, you know, a couple of cop cars that were tipped over and, you know, there was fire around them and the fire truck were putting them out. That to me is storytelling right there. You're telling a story with that single image. Um, And then of course I also started drawing my first initial kind of pop culture icons to be, or I guess some of them kind of were there. Like I tell people the first thing I saw on television, Star Trek, Batman Mm -hmm. and Spider-Man. And so I was initially hooked to superhero mythology and uh, science fiction at roughly the same time. So early grade school continued and uh, me and I started drawing pictures of the USS Enterprise, Batman and the Batmobile, Spider-Man swinging from a building and, and everything has just really kind of gone from there. Yeah, it was. I know that uh, you know. We're, today we're. Le- it's amazing to me today the age that we're living in. But back then, I, I don't think it was a. You know, we were pretty well off. I mean, with a lot of like things in syndication, such as Star Trek and and animated shows with Batman, Super Friends, uh, Spider Man, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and which led to my passion for for comics. And and did you go in that route as well? Yeah, um, you know, I, I tell people because, like I just previously mentioned, um, you know, I got introduced to certain things through television first. Yeah, me too. And some people get comics first, you know what I mean? And then the TV or movie stuff follows. But uh, my dad was stationed, my dad Bob was stationed over in Guam when I saw those shows. And so when we came back here stateside, um, we visited <clears throat> some of my mom's relatives. I have a, a couple of uncles, Leonard and Larry, and they were teenagers when I was still probably about roughly about seven years old. And we would go visit my grandma and they had the classic box of comic books up in grandma's attic and pull those out. And so kind of right around the same time, my mom also bought me a Batman comic book, which I was completely kind of baffled by because I think it was the Neil Adams era. Right. And I'm like, totally where's different, Rob- right? where's, yeah, where's Robin at? What is Batman's cape look like? It's 25 feet long. <laughs> um, that threw me off, but I was still just happy to have a Batman comic. And then of course with my uncle's, um, going through their old DC and Marvel comics, I, I just had like a whole range of characters just completely introduced to me, like uh, Conan and John Carter, Doc Savage, you know, some of the pulp heroes I wouldn't even have heard of if not for Marvel comics, but uh, you know, um, Adam Warlock, Iron Fist, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, um, and I remember those things. So I, I tell my uncles, they had a very big influence along with my mother and my, and my mom and dad, both honestly, cause I'd watched Star Trek with them too. But uh my uncles really got me into like a whole 
kind of gamut of what comic books were all about. And then Bruce Lee actually right around the same time. So they, wow. you know, things that I still love to this day, but um, so I just, you know, I started like digesting and being engulfed in the world of comics and my world was never the same, especially just, and I tell people there's a magic that uh, is still kind of there for me. I mean, especially for an older generation going to like a supermarket and that spinner rack was there. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a magazine stand at, you know, an Economart or something. Just seeing all these amazing stories in these worlds brought to life through these books and illustration um, forever, you know, changed and really kind of carved a, a path for me in my life. Uh, you said when you were doing illustrations, very quickly you were able to use the illustrations to tell stories. And I would imagine that sequential storytelling kind of followed from that as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, like some kids, I, I ended up uh, practicing by by actually grabbing the newspaper, the Sunday Funnies, mm-hmm. and some of the comic books that I had. And then I would sit there and try and copy a scene or a pose of a character um, out of those images to kind of start practicing. And I suppose because of doodling that stuff numerous times and then, and then kind of really sort of trying to pay attention to the mechanics of sequential storytelling to realize that, you know, just through these number of pictures that are all sequentially, you know, from point A to point B, that there's this wonderful world and story unfolding. And, um, you know, I think it just really continued to really, I guess, light the fire of my imagination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so growing, uh, you know, as you're getting older, is, is that a goal to get into comics or is it, is, is there something else, uh, moving you forward? Well, you know, when I was younger in, in my twenties, that was the prime goal. Like I, I, I roughly found out that at 11, 11 years old, three to four important things happened in my life, kind of some crossroads and big milestones, like, um, thinking of comics as a career because I, I transitioned from, I really love the characters mm-hmm. to starting to follow the art. And John Byrne was my first rock star comic artist idol. I, I, I uh, discovered him like on star Lord, iron fist, followed him over to the Chris Claremont run of um, the X-Men. Right. And, and that was also huge for me because it was the first time, like my mom would buy me comics, but I was getting a little older in my late grade school years, early teens to have a little money to ride to the grocery store on my bicycle, my <laughs> huffy, my huffy dragster. Right. I knew exactly when the X-Men books came out and I just could not wait every month for that issue to come out. And then just to like ride home with a can of Mountain Dew and lay on a picnic table during the summertime <laughs> and just like, just drink it all in, you know, literally. And, um, but, but also because of realizing, wow, this art is just amazing. I think that's when I discovered the styles of artists, you know, uh-huh. and, um, and so that gave me a bit of direction. And then, of course, when I was 11, also Star Wars came out. And like a lot of people, that also fundamentally changed my world and kind of got me in the notion of um, possibly being a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And of course, even I mean, and I don't always like uh, I don't know. There's some people who may or may not remember stuff like Starlog magazine. That was one of my like nerd Bibles. Yeah, and, you, are, uh, you are definitely speaking my language. We are right in that same age group, I think. And my dad actually bought me my very first um issue of Starlog magazine because it had, you know, Star Trek on the cover. Mm-hmm. And and from that point on, I was very much um, introduced to the world of the behind the scenes, the how to, you know, uh, well, I, although I did have a, like um, a how to, or how the, the making of Star Trek book. So that was, I guess, somewhere at the beginning of it too, but um, reading up on films being made, you know, I remember reading up on Star Wars as it was being made before it was even released. And I just, same thing, like, like probably realizing there's a potential for a path for people to enter this world of creative storytelling, whether it be through comics, 
through film. Um, for me, that's when I kind of realized that this is probably really what I was meant to do. And, and it never left me. You know, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I bring, a, bring up a humorous story that I've heard artists through the years sometimes will go through those years in their teens where they discover girls. So comics got put on the shelf. Never happened for me. I, I had my first quote unquote girlfriend when I was 16 and she started calling my mom and dad's house 20 times a day. And I'd be annoyed within about a day or so because she kept calling me asking what I'm doing. And I'm like, I'm drawing comics. And that, that took precedence, you know, and I guess that's how important um, it was for me, you know, through my whole life. Now I will say this, that, uh, like I said, at that time when I kind of had balanced, do I want to draw comic books and be a storyteller that way? Do I want to be like a film writer and director. Um, I was a pretty meek, shy art nerd back then. And so I kind of felt like, well, I can't, I can't really swim with the sharks in that world. So comics seemed like a safer bet. Mm. And um, interestingly enough, and I'll do it just a quick segue on the side. So in my modern age, my, my second life, my adult life, um, like I said, getting my IPs off the ground as projects, I re-embraced the notion about 10 years ago of getting my characters that I created roughly around that same age, 11 years old, and have been sort of developing them as film projects and TV projects. So in a weird sort of way, I have kind of merged those, those goals and ideals from the, my 11 year old self, which is comics, Mm -hmm. film, TV, that kind of stuff. And so I guess I sort of kind of merged the two as I've gotten older, but, um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the entertainment industry, I tell people, is not for the faint of heart because <laughs> it's not like a quote unquote normal job where you go in and you fill out, you know, your resume or your application to get hired. I mean, it's a lot of numerous factors, the timing, luck, networking, who you know, sometimes oh, yeah. a slight bit of nepotism, just a number of things that can get your foot in the door. And sometimes it takes a while to get there. You know, you got to pay your dues. So there's definitely an emotional roller coaster aspect of it, too, that, uh, you know, as I, I've dealt with in my own life and I've. I've been pretty transparent to say there have been times when I thought things were going a certain direction with my career artistically and then also parts of the entertainment world I've been a part of. And sometimes there's a lot of peaks and valleys in there, and I can understand why it's tempting sometimes to throw in the towel. However, in the end, I wouldn't be able to do that. I would I would no longer be me because it's kind of like not breathing for me unless I'm being creative and utilizing my imagination. I mean, literally for decades now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you're... Growing up, you're getting involved and you're drawing comics. Are you drawing uh, your own independent stuff? Are you sort of gearing up to, to, to be part of the Marvel machine or DC? Or what's your, what's your goal then? It was kind of, they were both in tandem. It was uh, pa- the same kind of passion, creating my own characters. Uh, sometimes those are just a single drawing. Same thing, like a story could come from that single drawing or design. But then also the big goal at the time was to get a gig with Marvel. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, I mean, I kind of got spoiled, honestly. That was my first big company work was with Marvel, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, I mean, it's not like it just happened instantly. Like, I had to go to a number of San Diego Comic Cons to kind of take my lumps and get critiqued in the portfolio review lines, you know, to get there. But that was my first official. In fact, I've got my uh, my very first check for Marvel framed. Wow. You know what I mean? So, What, yeah, what was it, the assignment? It was for Punisher 2099. Nice. Nice. I do remember that. Okay. Yes. That's well, it. and I, and, and I've told some people too, like, I know that like, since I was so excited about the style, the stylizations of artists that I admired, I was kind of glad that I got something probably a little more under my radar than, I mean, I think a lot of artists get into it with the goal, like it's my dream to draw Batman, Spider-Man, the X-Men. 
but I kind of like the idea of getting more of a, uh, not a second tier character per se. Cause I mean, Punisher was huge, but um, Jade Gallows, the, the 2099 version of that character was not as well known as, you know, Frank Castle. Oh, right. And I sure. wanted to, I guess, leave my artistic imprint to hopefully kind of find your voice in the industry. So that for, and honestly, to this day, I still kind of feel that way. I used to have a buddy that was really into like role-playing games. And sometimes he would have rough scribbles of his characters. Um, and, and I just enjoyed kind of giving, I guess, my flourish of my style to bring that character to life or to give it a bit of my personality in there too. So. And, and so you're, so you finally get boy, that must've been a, that must've been a great day, right? You get the, you finally get the gig from Marvel. Yeah, there, there's a little funny story behind that as well, actually. So so the first time I went to go try and get into comic books, um, I was torn apart by every major company and minor independent publisher as well, like all within that weekend. And I was just about ready to give up and, and leave with my tail between my legs. And then I had uh, found Carl Kessel, who was John Burns inker on his run on Superman. And so I just went up to him and said, hey, could you take a look at my work? And he was very encouraging. He said, hey, you know, you got some good stuff going on here. You know, your rendering, your line work is dialed in. Have you ever considered being an inker? So he got me in touch with a couple of editors and I worked on my line work. But he also gave me some fundamentals of storytelling that I still use actually to this day. And I sort of combined the two because I'm like, well, it would be cool to be an inker, but I still would like to be a penciler. So I worked on the things he had, he had mentioned. And there was about a two or three year gap. And when I went back the, the second time, because DC was the first, Marvel was second. And of course, every time I went to a company, basically in so many terms said, you know, um, you're not ready. Maybe you need to be a truck driver. Um, you know, it's not for everybody. And so the, the next time I went back, the first thing and I went, I sort of followed the same path. I went to DC first. First thing out of the guy's mouth was, oh, who are you working for, Tom? So I thought that was a good sign. And then I, <laughs> I made my way down a list of and I got a lot of encouragement from professionals who were working, saying your stuff looks polished and professional. So Initially, there was Malibu Comics, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. not too long down the road, they uh, they got bought out by Marvel. But initially, it looked like I was going to do some work for them, and there was an editor interested in what I was doing. Gave me his contact info. I reached out to him a couple times. Didn't hear back for a couple months, and my roommate decided to play a really cruel prank on me, and I still tease him to this day. <laughs> he pretended to be that editor oh, and no. left me a voicemail, or you know, on my answering machine. And it turned out to be a joke. And I'm like, I'm like, I wanted to, you know, strangle him. I'm like, why would you do that? That's not funny. That's incredibly mean. So, so a few more months went by and then I got this message and I, you know, listened to the the answering machine and it uh, was Matt Moore. And he goes, Oh, I, I work as an editor for Mighty Marvel Comics. And I'd like to know if you would be interested in working for me. So when my roommate got home, I said, did you do that again? Did you honestly do that again? The second time I said, really, that's, you know, and then he's like, no, no, I swear. So I called him back and phone was shaking in my hand and yeah that's uh the editor you know was like yeah i i love your stuff and um you know we'd like to put you on the punisher and and i remember being even then like you know just like it, it was such a shangri-la moment to me because i got my fedex box delivered with my marvel pages to draw on they send you all of your art materials you get the script and that was a very big day you know between getting the call and then getting the assignment getting the script and, and the pages and seeing marvel comics in the corner of those original comic mm-hmm. pages to draw on, you know, it was uh, so exciting and intimidating all at the same time. But um, yeah. And, and actually it was such a big deal that the hometown that I grew up in actually did a story on it on the news. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Big, big deal for them, you know? 
Absolutely. And I mean, and that's, and yeah, unfortunately, I guess now, you know, nobody gets the, those packets don't, uh, don't come like that anymore. It's all through digital, through email and everything. So it's probably, it's still probably pretty exciting, but they don't have that tangible quality to it that, that, uh, we had back then, but that's true of a lot of things. So, um, let's talk about like, let's move forward to uh, talk about how all of that, um, has helped your transition to what you're doing now. Well, so when I got into the market for Marvel, things got a little rough. It was known as the great implosion. So mm-hmm. like, you know, there was a lot of artists who got work for years, had, had a uh, struggle. Sometimes in some ways, the industry has never fully recovered from that time. It was an incredibly exciting time. Image was blowing up in the nineties. Comics were selling in the speculator market like hotcakes, but then within a number of years, maybe a few to several, the bubble burst. And so, um, a couple of my buddies and, and I have two very dear friends that I pretty much kind of grew up with too. And it was our goal to do comics together. And actually both of them kind of went on to sort of get their foot in the door. One drew some stuff for DC. The other one's done a couple of um, series with image, but um, they transitioned over to doing video games. And so they kind of talked to me about that for a while. And they said, you know, you should come over here because the money's better. You're a salaried employee. You got to, you know, you, you have a benefit package. And, um, and so it took a while for me to get my foot in the door there too. Everything I've done, it takes a while to sort of get your foot in the door, but I did finally get my foot in the door and I was doing video game, uh, concept art, working on games like that were more like Torchlight, World of Warcraft, those kinds of things. And, um, it was, it was definitely a fun chapter because I felt like it helped me hone my skills more. Um, but then I kind of broke away from that after a while too, because the same thing, you know, the market gets a little volatile. Like when you'd work on a game, you'd be at a studio for two to four years. Oh, Once yeah. mobile games came into the mix, that really shortened the shelf life of, of getting steady work. So with that being said, you know, I, I could have probably, cause I haven't been in games now for a bit full time. And I have had a couple of offers and I sort of turned those down. I'm also a new dad, my daughter's three. And so I felt like I needed to have a bit more of a stable life and income. And so I decided to turn down a couple of game gig offers that I had as concept art for games. But then around that time, or I guess I should say a little bit before my daughter, I was very getting heavily involved in social media, like Facebook. Mm -hmm. So people were kind of following me, you know, I mainly promote my artwork on there and they had asked, would you ever consider going back to draw for Marvel? And I realized that as fun as comics can be, especially as a penciler, they're very labor intensive gig i mean depends on what the scripts asked for you you know you could have like 12 hours 16 hours 24 hours you know you you've got to meet deadlines and you got to get the scene done and as i'm older now i'm going well do i have the stamina for something like that as fun as that could possibly be um or if i'm going to do comics why don't i bring my characters to life that i've had i've had kind of in my back pocket now for decades and so about 10 years ago, I decided to um, kind of flesh out the concept uh, Black Alpha, which that was the first one I created as a, an 11-year-old. And I tell people the quick pitch of that IP is, what if you took the Batman story, sprinkled in Iron Man tech, and dropped it off in the middle of Star Wars? <laughs> so obviously, I've combined science fiction and superheroes, my very first inspiration of nerddom, you know, and long, it was a lifelong love affair. Like I tell people, I was instantly in love with genre stuff never looked back. So it would only make sense to me that my first kind of major grade school creation would be something along those lines. And, and I've actually had a number of characters and other character I created when I was 16 called Salem Tusk. Um, you know, all of these characters sort of have become like friends for me, like, you know, their worlds and their stories that I want to tell have never left me. And so 
with that being said, you know, I decided to get Black Alpha in the public eye and through stuff like social media, I had some opportunities come to me. Black Alpha was published in USA Today. I had uh, merchandise prototypes created that were seen on numerous episodes of The Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Black Alpha has been optioned a few times for TV and cartoon development. Uh, Salem Tusk, the other one that I created as a 16-year-old, is actually in pre-production as an action movie. Um, it's, and it starts filming in a year. And I actually get to go on set in about a year and film my Stanley-style cameo for it. Oh, nice. Um, and I've had seven characters out in the public eye, and they've all had interest from Hollywood in the last several years. Now, I will say this, that, and I've kind of had to educate, I guess, the layperson. Um, things move really slowly in Hollywood. And sometimes you can have something that almost happens and there's a number of factors why it falls apart. Um, this happened, this has happened for years with, uh, anything that's maybe based on a popular book. You know, I've seen a lot of things being optioned like from fantasy novels from like the seventies or the eighties and science fiction. And, and only now are some of them being brought to light because there's just so many variables, so many working parts in the television and film industry. Um, so with that being said, like, you know, I've had three different deals for Black Alpha. It looked like it was going to happen. hasn't happened. I still continue to talk to people like Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, Salem Tusk is more of a, a more lower budget independent movie, but I sort of appreciate that too, because then I'm a little more involved in the project than I probably would be if a major studio had come along to pick it up. Um, and so I guess I feel great knowing and grateful, honestly, that, uh, you know, people have been interested in original content and IP because when you transition from, I guess, you know, being involved with something that's fairly well known and then trying to get your own work out there. I mean, there's a bit of a risk because, you know, most people are going to want to go with the things they've heard of. You know, sometimes they're leery to take, I guess, risks on something that they haven't heard of. But, you know, in the end, that's really the legacy I want to leave behind, especially for my daughter. You know, I want to tell her that even as I was older, I never gave up on my dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, and through the I guess just the sheer ambition and tenacity and not giving up that some of these things are coming to light you know all these years later um, and so I can say that even with the roller coaster of all of it that I am living kind of my I guess my real being the hero of my own story this is it right here everything decades worth has led led me up to this where um, I mean don't get me wrong I'll say this real quick if somebody came to me and said hey we're going to offer you a million dollars and we're going to ask you to develop a star Wars or star Trek TV show. (laughs) It'd be incredibly difficult to turn that down, but I still really get such a zing out of crafting my own characters and universes. I mean, it's like, I'm sort of the birth mother to see characters in your imagination being brought to fruition and reality in a number of forms, you know, in my case, toys and and collectibles and comics and, you know, uh, t-shirts, baseball caps, all that stuff is, something that I still, I turn into the kid in me every time I see something like that brought to life. So. And, and the properties that uh, at least I've looked into of yours have uh, the promotional work that you've done for like black alpha, uh, Evelyn 11, Salem Tusk, Bondsman, Damian moon, et cetera. I mean, they all look like they all look so valid and, and so interesting. I'm like, yeah, I want more of that please. And that, and that, and that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I greatly appreciate that. Like I said, because, um, you, you know, you never know there's a vulnerability. I, you know, I don't care where you're at, I guess, on the layered spectrum of, of creative expression. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I did a panel just a few days ago at a con here. And I talked about that, that I, I get the vulnerability, like to express yourself through a performance as a musical artist and actor, someone who does poetry, prose, you know, a novel, you got a manuscript. Um, 
because there is that exchange with that audience. And so I guess I feel great. And thank you, by the way, for your comment once again, because that still never completely leaves somebody. You want to have confidence in what you're doing, but you don't want to live in a bubble either where like your stuff probably needs to be polished up or fine tuned. And I never, I guess I never want to go there, but I, I will say that one thing that's interesting I've noticed too, and this was not necessarily by design as much as I've loved superheroes growing up. Um, I only have one property called Marutech, which I pitch as kind of a Mexican Ben 10 meets Shazam. It's a tribute to my late grand, my, my late grandfather, Gabriel Gonzalez. That's the only real IP of mine that really has like straight on superhero mythology qualities. Black Alpha has a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's still, I consider it more sci-fi. Um, Damien Moon is kind of like what I pitch as James Bond meets Doctor Strange. Uh, Evelyn Eleven is kind of like a female Jason Bourne that's trapped in the world of Mad Max. Um, each one of them is a little, if they're not pure superhero, which kind of makes me feel good because I'm hoping that's what stands out, you right. know, in the pack or in the crowd, because I, and I've seen some guys come up with some really fun takes on traditional superhero mythology, whether or not it's kind of following in the line of a super Superman S character or more deconstructing it like the Watchmen or the boys or whatever. Um, but I, I guess for me, I, I maybe in a way, because I never went the full superhero route because I feel like, for myself personally, there's a lot, there's not really a fresh voice I can bring to that world. I mean, there's so many great things that have been done already. Yeah. yeah. So I figured I'll, I, I like to do my amalgamation, I guess, mashup, like everything that I pitch is it's this meets this meets this. So it's kind of like, I'm always doing this creative stew of combining the genres that I love or kind of putting them on their ear and mixing two that maybe don't seem like they would work and just kind of seeing where that, that goes, I guess. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that it, it's, it, it's a, <laughs> it's a very huge market out there for superhero properties already. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to see other things pop up. And, uh, um, these a lot, a lot of them do look, they have that familiar look, but also they look, you know, original too at the same time. So it's a nice combination, I think, of properties that you've got in a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, creations of yours. Um, so, um, but now that we've talked about your creations and some of the things you've done in the past, let's find out what you're really passionate about, Mike. I think okay. he's, I think he's ready for the geek seat, man. Well, he's had to deal with so much over the years. I think he might be a, one of our first contestants that's actually ready for this. Maybe. We'll Maybe. See. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, see. we'll have to see. We'll have to see. All right, Tom. You ready for your first question in the geek seat? Yes, I am. All right, Tom. What was your favorite geek out moment? My favorite geek out moment was when I finally got to meet William Shatner. Really? Do um, tell. Well, it was surreal for me because Captain Kirk was my first idol, you know, at four years old. I would say him and Adam West, Shatner and Adam West were kind of there together. And I had wanted to meet Captain Kirk my whole life. Um, but in a, an interesting situation, um, young Shatner as Kirk reminded me a lot of my father. I, I felt like they had a similar quality. So when I finally got to meet Shatner, there was a surreal quality. Well, first of all, he's not as tall as some people think he is. You know, right. he's roughly around 5'10 or so, uh, roughly my height. But when I saw him, too, he reminded me a lot of my dad still. So there was this interesting, like, I finally got to meet Captain Kirk, and he reminds me of my father more than ever. So, Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. I'm glad it was a good experience with you because, you know, he's very personable when you get to meet him in person. Yeah, and he, like a lot of celebrities, like you hear some kind of, you know, I guess unpleasant stories, but they're human. And I feel like, you know, they go through a lot themselves and certain times and especially under the pressure of all that fandom and 
the meet and greets and all that stuff, you know, there might be times people just kind of met them on a bad day. So mm-hmm. exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, let's look at the other side of that. Kind of what we were just talking about. What was the most disappointing geek out moment? Oh, I'm, I'm trying to search my brain because, um, I don't know if I've honestly had too many of them in my life, you know, um, because everything that I've geeked out about since I was a young child has almost generally been positive. I mean, I guess uh, Battlestar Galactica <laughs> getting canceled, um, oh, sure. the, 19, the 1978. I mean, I love that show. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, I had a similar thing to like any popular kind of, I guess, cult-like, you know, Star Trek, obviously being kind of the grandfather of all that. Um, Firefly would be another example later on. These shows that just really start to seem to kind of, find their legs and all of a sudden they get yanked off the air. And so I was, uh, you know, to me, I tell people I love star Wars, but I love Battlestar Galactica just as much. I was so excited for it to come out. It was like, this is star Wars for TV. And so, yeah, that was a crushing blow to me to have star or Battlestar Galactica canceled and, and the what ifs and what could have been. So, Oh, I'm sure. I'm totally sure with that. What keeps you out the most? Um, well, I'm going to say a combination of two things. First of all, being a father is such an amazing feeling that anybody can go through because uh, until it happens to you, you can intellectualize it, you can describe it. Um, and it's the miracle, true miracle of life. And also, you know, my, my, my create, my creations were my brain children until my daughter came along. And I've also, Trish and I, her mother and I have spent a good amount of time indoctrinating her pretty much since she was in the womb. And so she very much loves old Star Trek. <laughs> Spock is her favorite character. Um, she loves the Marvel and DC superheroes. And then I, I say the, the one that always kind of gets me choked up is she's, she's still kind of young to process what dad does, but she'll see my characters lined up and she'll go superheroes. And then she'll say for Halloween, she wants to be my Evelyn 11 character. Oh, that's awesome. And so to me that, you know, as a parent, kind of having your actual child in a way mingle with your brain children, you know, there's such an amazing, almost ethereal plane like quality to it. Um, but I'm also going to say, I guess the third part of that, I apologize is I'm just, I'm grateful that I'm uh, a geek or nerd about anything. I mean, I love the fact that that's something I've known the majority of since I've had memories. And I love the fact that it's still there, you know, it's still just as fun and exciting for me as it did as, as a preschool age kid, you know? So I, I'm and I'm glad that in a way the world sort of caught up with us. Anyone who's grown up loving these things, like it, it's obviously sort of exploded in the mainstream. And I think people get a little peek into the stuff we've all known that are into anything that we're so passionate about. No, nope, totally makes sense. That totally makes sense. What turns your geek off though? Um, probably arrogance. I mean, there's certain people who've kind of made a mark in certain aspects of entertainment. And I feel like, uh, like I said, I know they're human, but at times I feel like certain people still need to kind of recognize that without fandom, they don't have a place, you know what I mean? Where they're lifted up on this perch of being admired and, and respected sometimes, you know, idol worship, that kind of stuff. So, so arrogance would be the main thing. I think everyone always needs to remember humble beginnings. And at the end of the day, we're still people, all of us, regardless of accomplishments. Oh, sure. Well, that totally makes sense completely. Totally does. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? What fictional character? Yes, sir. Batman. Ooh. Okay. 
So as in going out for a beer with Batman or just saying, thanks, Batman, for all you do. I think, uh, <laughs> I don't know, the idea of having a beer with Batman actually sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a line, I watched this documentary all back about the Adam West version of the character, and there's this scene where he walks into a bar or a club or something, and he says to the maitre d', they're like, well, would you like me to seat you over in here? And he goes, no, I'd rather sit by the bar, I'd rather not attract attention, you know, while he's in his full <laughs> Batman costume. <laughs> Um, that's the version of Batman I probably would enjoy having a drink with. But the, the, I guess the character in general is just sort of just understand um, his motivation and psychology and and find a way to hopefully, you know, let him know you're not alone. I mean, he's such a damaged, tortured character at times and just kind of show him that uh, there's still people, good people out there and, you know, would care about him. And, and of course, and also I, I would probably turn into a 13-year-old girl and just say, can I come see the Batcave? Can I take a ride in the Batmobile? Can I check out your bat gadgets? <laughs> We'd have to spray you with this first, you know, before he'd get to that. The, the bat, I think it'd have to spray me with the bat shark repellent from the, from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. What fictional character would you like to meet the least? I'm trying to think, you know, if there's really, if, uh, Everyone really likes Guy Gardner from the Green Lantern Corps, and I've always found him really obnoxious and annoying. <laughs> Even though I know he's supposed to be that way, he still, I'd just be like, I could only handle a very small dose of that guy. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go drinking with him. No. Not at all. <laughs> Heck, I wouldn't even want to go into his bar of warriors. No. No, and, and he'd probably figure out a way to sort of, you know, do several um, the Green Lantern energy constructs to make your life miserable. So, Yep, that sounds about right. That definitely sounds right. What is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? Um, the Vulcanitic. Infinite diversity and infinite combination. Nice. Nice. Wow. That, that's a first in this one. This is a first one. That's awesome. I like that. What is your ideal geek occupation? Um, I guess I'm living it. Nice. Nice. Content creator. That is awesome. Because so many people, you know, they wish for what you could do and, you know, and you're doing it. You're living the dream. I think both of us, Mike and I both wanted to do what you're doing and it's pretty amazing. Well, thank you. And, and uh, Rob Liefeld, you know, creator of Deadpool, uh, I've heard us because I, I, I love his blog or his podcast and he called it um, architects of pop culture. Nice. It's kind of another nope. term for content creator. That's a good way to put it. That is very true because it's just not comics. It's not just books it's just not movies it's not everything no it's everything it's pretty amazing yeah exactly what geek occupation would you not like to do though i think that um i think you know if, if it's a geek occupation i think it would be something that you would take for the money to appear as a character that you have no vested interest in you know, like mm. like to basically show up at an event dressed as this character and you know nothing about it. Uh, you, you're not passionate about it. And that would be a real tough geek gig, in my opinion. No, totally understand. Totally understand. All right, Tom, are you ready for your final question in the geek seat? This yes, is for all the marbles. So this, <laughs> is, okay. this is for everything. People will look at you in the, you know, the history books and go, this is his final answer in the geek seat. So, yeah. This is pretty important. Tom, what is your ultimate geek fantasy? 
to uh, see one of my characters come to life in a television, you know, movie, television show, cartoon, um, kinetic, kinetic form of storytelling. You know, um, comics are static. Kinetic is movement. And I think that that's, you know, something I've been working towards. And, and I will say this on a side note. I'm kind of combining an answer again. Um, I grew up as a huge science fiction model fan. My dad bought me my first models when I was about six or seven of the AMT Enterprise. I had the Klingon Battlecruiser. And so with that being said, I have a small model kit company that's actually making a model of Black Alpha ship, oh, nice. which should be for sale this summer. And that's a kind of the combination of like uh, seeing something as a cartoon, seeing it as a toy. And in my case, being a spaceship model nerd, seeing an actual model kit of my ship that's been floating around in my head for quite a many years. That's so cool. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, Tom, I've got some great news for you, my friend. You've made it through the Geek Seat. Congratulations. Thank you. Huzzah. Awesome. Thank Huzzah. You. Mr. Mike Gordon, <laughs> tell the young man what he's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth $39.08. Hey, that only, works for me. Only in station. It's only in station money, though. Yeah, so station yeah. currency. It, oh, well, it decreases a lot by the time you get to the plan. Um where can people go and find out what you're up to, what you're doing, the latest on all of your content? Is there one site in particular, or do you have a few? I pretty much am very active on my personal Facebook page, which is under Tom Rash, T-O-M, Rash, R-A-S-C-H. I'm going to say that again, R-A-S-C-H. Um, you can find me, like if you, and I always encourage people that I meet at cons and other venues to uh, friend request me. I love keeping in touch with everyone I've met. Um, if you look, you'll find a picture of me and my daughter. She was actually crowned Little Miss South Dakota in January. So she's in her pageant gown with her sash, and I'm hugging her from behind. Um, and then there's an actual um, a credit concept of the Salem Tusk movie where it says Salem, based on Salem Tusk created by Tom Rash. That's my cover photo. Um, that's the one I'm primarily on because I love the instant back and forth with people getting an idea for the interaction. And I will say this, too, if anyone comes to my page, it is a nerd sanctum. Um, <laughs> I do not allow politics and, and theological discussions, a lot of hot button issues for people. My page is mainly about to um, share my love of cinema and Star Trek and Star Wars. And I occasionally, sh- I'm that parent now that loves sharing pictures of my daughter because I'm very proud. Um, so there, you know, there's a, there's an Instagram page for, uh, for Tom Rash. I think that's under trash 65. There's a Twitter page for black alpha Um might be forgetting one or two, but uh, yeah, generally it's for me, it's Facebook, uh, but check out the Tom Rash Instagram. They have a black Alpha Instagram. Um, and pretty much I try and sort of spread out, I guess, news or information. I, it, sometimes it's tough because I will find myself going through periods where I put focus on one of my IPs, but I am trying to get back in the groove this upcoming year to like, not just have it be all black alpha, Salem Tusk, you know, um, we're going to be doing a Kickstarter for the Bondsman down the road, which is my love letter to the awesome image 90s characters like Spawn, um, Grifter from Wildcats. And uh, that's going to be another one. And by the way, the Bondsman also a couple of years ago was picked up to be developed as a film by filmmaker um, Max Churchy. And so, I mean, that's still kind of in development. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, so basically I just I'm, I'm going to do better. I promise everybody to put a spotlight on all my characters and not just focus on one. Like I said, it is tough because sometimes certain developments like, you know, black alpha two with uh, WTF comics is currently in production after we did a really successful Kickstarter last year. So 
sometimes that and then the production on Salem Tusk is stuff to sort of get that out there. But I, I want to, I guess, really promote all my IP across the board. Sure, absolutely. As well, you should. And we will definitely have links to at least to the Facebook uh, on the show notes so that people can go directly and check you out. Sounds good. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. It's been really fun. Yeah, I very much enjoyed this. And I, I wanted to say that um, I've never, I don't, if I have, I don't recall it. I've never done like the, the awesome question segment of a show. <laughs> and and it, it sort of it keeps the mind a little sharper because, you know, you, you get things you don't really consider that people don't bring up in conversation. So that was fun for me to like the way the questions were, were structured and worded to actually kind of go, well, wait a second, hold on. You know, I mean, that was fun for me to consider things I never really thought about. Well, that's why we like to keep you on your toes on the show. You guys did a phenomenal I, I, job. I don't know, Mike. Uh, maybe we need to retool the seat. It's supposed to be a torture device. I think he yeah. enjoyed it a little too much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm thinking so also. But let's yeah, there was a- no safe word involved. So. <laughs> no, nope, there was not. We uh, left that part out purposely, so it was okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's take a quick break, and we will be back in a moment, and we are going to be looking all at Jurassic World Dominion. everybody. Michelle here with an iconic rock talk show moment, taking a moment to acknowledge uh, some of the passings that we've had in the last couple of weeks in the music world. On the same day, May 26th, Andy Fletcher of Depeche Mode in a very sad and shocking loss at age 60. Uh, Also, Alan White, longtime drummer of Yes and played with other musicians as well, had been having health problems, missed a few tours. He was 72. And on June 5th, Alec John Such, founding bass player for Bon Jovi. Everybody knows the opening of Living on a Prayer. And that is him. And so we celebrate these men and bid them to travel on well. And in other news, you may be aware that the high and mighty Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth and Defender of the Faith, celebrated her 70th year on the throne. Her jubilee celebration was the first weekend in June. I have to admit, I got a kick out of seeing her tap out the rhythm of We Will Rock You on a Teacup. Sorry, I'm geeky. That just made my day that day. Um, Queen and Adam Lambert, of course, played the Jubilee concert at Buckingham Palace. Queen was never a band to leave a lot in the vaults. They're not like Prince. They didn't leave a lot of stuff to be discovered, which has been kind of sad that there's nothing out there to be found with Freddie Mercury's vocals on it. Or is there? We have heard. Uh, Roger Taylor has said that there is a song um, dating back to the Miracle album sessions of the late 80s. Uh, They thought it didn't sound good and they couldn't fix it, but the engineers played with it a bit and they've got it so it sounds good enough to put out and they say it may be out in September. So that is definitely something to look forward to. And the Celebrating David Bowie Tour uh, starts October 6th and will cover the North American continent this fall. It features sometime guitarist Adrian Ballou, also of King Crimson, and Todd Rundgren, who 
uh, never really worked, I don't think, with Bowie in terms of recording, but they did uh, meet and talk several times. Uh, there will be other musicians involved, including Todd's ex-son-in-law and Space Hog guitarist Royston Langston, Langdon and uh, several other musicians as well. Uh, no word on the material they'll, they'll cover, but I think it will be a very interesting evening. This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment. We'll catch you next time. Comic-Cons are back, and fans are ready. Hear all about it on The Con Guy Show, where we keep you up to date on all the events, the movies, the people, and the conventions that drive your passions and feed your fandom. Straight from the nerdy heart of Hollywood, California, we are proud members of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. That's impossible. Hey, girl. You look just like your mother. I promise you, I am going to get her back. Genetic power has now been unleashed. We made a terrible mistake. Doomsday clock might be about out of time. If our world's gonna survive, what matters is what we do now. I can use your expertise. You coming or what? A baby raptor? I made a promise we would bring her home. You made a promise to a dinosaur? Yeah. What? Everybody hold on to somebody. That can't be right. Biggest carnivore the world has ever seen. Run! See? Not so bad. Hey there, welcome back to Earth Station One. Now it is time for a review of Jurassic World Dominion. The sixth movie of the Jurassic franchise. I don't want to say Jurassic World because Jurassic Park, Jurassic, whatever. It's a Jurassic franchise. The sixth movie. Um, and uh, yeah, was it the last one? Probably not. But we'll see what we think about this one. Of course, we've got our movie crew here. We've got Ashley here. Hello. Always a pleasure to be back. And uh, we've got with us a special guest, Rob Levy. Rob, you haven't been here for a while. Welcome back, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So uh, Alex is not here. So uh, we'll do a, a real quick uh, discussion of the box office. Uh, Jurassic World Dominion uh, grossed uh, one, uh, $145.1 million in the United States and Canada. 
247 million point four, uh, sorry, 247.4 million in other territories for a worldwide total of just under 400 million. Um, I, Ashley, I don't know. Now that we've seen these movies, I don't know where you, I don't remember where you picked it on the summer movie box office list, but I thought it was going to be no question the number one movie of the summer. I am strongly doubting that now, (laughs) although it's off to a good start. Yeah, I am no box office wizard, but I would not be surprised if the drop off between opening weekend and next weekend is pretty steep, especially with um, Lightyear uh, coming very soon. Yeah, Lightyear is just next weekend, right? Yes. So it's not, it doesn't even have a chance to breathe. It's going to get pounded right away, I think. I think it's the first movie to really face that this summer. Yeah, it needed to be, I think, really good to hang on with all the heavy hitters coming. And I don't know that it quite did enough to do that. But I'm sure we'll get into that more uh, coming Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, According to the report I'm reading in the U.S. and Canada, uh, Dominion was initially projected to gross about $125 uh, And so it, it surpassed that. Um, and it actually was just below the, the opening day was just below the first Jurassic world's, uh, opening with, of 18.5 million. Um, it had the best weekend opening for a non-superhero film amid the, amid the pandemic. Um, and, uh, De- deadline Hollywood called the performance amazing considering the bad critical reviews and middling, uh, audience exist uh, scores. So, um, so despite the fact that it's not the word of mouth is not great, it's still really making money, uh, which seems to happen with a lot of the Jurassic movies, actually. <laughs> um, so, but uh, just real quick on that too. On that note, real, um, I I thought this was going to be the number one movie. Now that I've seen it, I have doubts. I had no idea that Top Gun Maverick would do nearly as well as it has, but it looks like it's on pace to possibly be the king of the summer, which just boggles my mind. Uh, but it, it's making things a lot interesting, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, any other thoughts on the box office? Rob, do you have any thoughts on how the summer box office is doing and this, the place of this movie in it? I think that having a non-superhero film, do well this week and probably next week is going to be huge. Mm. So just getting people to go to the movies. Um, there's a lot of people that are going to movies now just to go see sort of like the big things and they're not going to the smaller sure. things. Sure. So I think that anything that gets people going back to the movies um, as a guy that loves like sitting in a theater, um, I'm all for. And I think that, uh, you know, this is, I also think it's healthy for movies too, for something to succeed besides a superhero movie. So, you know, even if it's Top Gun and this and, you know, Lightyear or something else, just something that's not a Marvel franchise do well, does well for the industry in general, and hopefully that opens the doors for other more interesting things later. And and this movie in particular is one that really opens, I mean, is really like a big proponent of to, to see it just in IMAX or real 3D, real D 3D or Dolby cinema or some other kind. I mean, this, this movie is made for that kind of epic, big ex- theater experience. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, but I will say that I saw it this afternoon, and my theater was not crowded at all. <laughs> so uh, I don't think the people are seeing it who are seeing it are in this area anyway. Uh, but it's playing. But I will say I was surprised. It's playing on like eight screens out of the whatever they have, like fifteen or whatever. So it's playing on half the the, the screens on the on the cinema. So it's not for want of not being available. I mean, it's it's pretty much out there. If you want to see it in the theater, you can go right there and see it. Um, all right, let's get to what were what are, were our expectations going into this movie, and then sort of a real quick overview of what you felt coming out. Ashley, we will start with you. What were your thoughts about uh, your expectations for this? Yeah, so I am a fan of the Jurassic Park franchise. I mean, who doesn't love dinosaurs? It's one of those iconic movies that just makes you feel like a kid every time you watch it. And I've been generally happy with the Jurassic World uh, franchise so far. I really enjoyed the Jurassic World, the first movie. It has a special memory because I got it premiered a couple of days before I got married. So I took all my bridesmaids and we went to see Jurassic World together. So that was kind of a fun memory. And I feel like I enjoyed Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom more than most people. And Dominion was one of the movies I was most looking forward to this summer. I was hoping that it would kind of strike that perfect balance like The Force Awakens did between the legacy cast. You have classic characters returning, but also blending with the new cast. I was really intrigued by the idea of this post-apocalyptic world where dinosaurs are now part of the civilization, how that's impacting people, the ecosystem. I thought there was a lot of potential there. But um, so, yeah, coming off of our summer movie uh, podcast recording, I was really excited about um, this movie. But if a time traveler had come and told me at that point that I would actually think that Top Gun Maverick was a much better movie that I would enjoy a lot more, I would have given them a strange look. But you know what? It's true. Um, I never would have predicted that. But, yeah, I I was disappointed in Jurassic World Dominion. It was not what I expected it was going to do not really what I wanted it to do. And there was actually, I thought, a surprising lack of dinosaurs for a movie that was supposed to sort of be the final movie of the franchise. So I'm really curious for the development of this one, kind of what all went into it. But I feel like it's really a shame because if you're going to have classic characters like Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant back to just kind of miss miss the boat in terms of what this movie could have been. So... Yeah, not not what I expected it to be, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, understandable, understandable. Um, Rob, what about you? What were your thoughts going into this movie? Um, and uh, what were they coming out? So I wasn't expecting much. Um, I was, the big draw for me was seeing Sam Neill again sure. and Laura Dern again. And um, that other guy, that's that little small actor nobody's heard of, Jeff Goldblum. Um <laughs> I was just kind of curious more to see them. And I looked upon that as a, like a really great opportunity to get a break from Chris Pratt being Chris Pratt, <laughs> um, which is not a bad thing. It's just, I was kind of looking forward to that. You know, the big problem with Jurassic Park, any of the movies is that the first time you see, and I saw Jurassic Park in the same theater that I saw it 25 years ago earlier. A friend, my friend pointed that out to me. And it made me think as I was getting ready for this, that like, the first time you saw Jurassic Park, they didn't show the dinosaurs. You didn't know nothing. It was a secret, right? The first time you saw those dinosaurs and you freaked out, right, mm-hmm. and how awesome that was, once you've done that, you can't do anything else again. 
And that is why this is fundamentally the problem. There's really nothing they can show. They've got a dinosaur that's bigger than a T-Rex. they got dinosaurs that swim that are huge and cool looking, but we just don't care, right? So I think that that's part of it. And I think, you know, I don't think that they didn't use the, the original cast too little. I just don't think that they really had a strong plot point going into it. I think it just, I don't know if it was COVID. I don't know if it was budgeting, but it just seems like there was, it feels like me, it feels to me like a movie where they had more stuff they wanted to do, but they ran out of money or time or resources. I, I felt that in some ways too, that it was a little, that felt a little like, uh, dare I say rushed, like, like they had said, this is the date that it's going to open. And you, no matter what, you have to make this date. And so they gave us, they gave us what they gave us because <laughs> they well, had to make the date. Yeah. But it's not even like it felt like the script was cut back from. The script was really, really formulaic. It was like you had a white bread villain who was trying to be a Steve Jobs slash Bill Gates type character working with genetics. And it was like, who cares almost with it? I, I think it, it collapsed under the weight of trying to condense every eco-political social problem in our world into one movie. Exactly. No, I agree completely with that, Rob. And it was just interesting, too, because, like you said, at the beginning of the movie, they were showing how the dinosaurs were integrating with humanity and animals on modern animals and such. And I wanted to see more of that and, you know, more of of, you know, seeing New York City with a Triceratops running down Fifth Avenue or something like that, or brontosauruses, in, you know, in Washington, D.C. or Moscow or something, I think would have been really, really cool. But it just, it didn't work. It just, you know, they went off on this cockroach story, which, you know, which was like, what? Focus, but yeah, same thing. Yeah, locust cock. They were giant roaches, you know. They were locusts. You know, basically it was the Bible coming to life, and they had to touch on that, you know. And it was just like how they're going to eat, you know, all the wheat and grain and everything. It was just like, oh, man. There was just – it was it was two-way. And then they had to shoehorn every single character in on top of it. And like you, it's been mentioned already, it was too top-heavy. It was tipping over almost right from the very beginning. Yeah, well put, Mike. Well put. Um, I think, okay, so when we did our, our, you know, box office predictions and everything, I had faith in this movie for a couple reasons. One, I thought, okay, well, they're bringing back the original cast. There's a reunion of that, of, of them, uh, with, along with the new cast, the park meets world. It's going to be interesting. Um, there's going to be that, that nostalgia factor that's going to come in and, coming to play and it's going to be sort of like Jurassic no worry home or no world home or something. Right. Where it's going to be really fun. Right. Um, but I also was really excited because uh, this is sort of to Rob's point after the first movie, the first movie is about like, okay, we built this park. It's got dinosaurs in it. The, you know, the dinosaurs are getting loose and you know, their problem. And that's the, that's the main plot of the story. Every single Jurassic park movie has been, that story right where it's like 
oh, here they are in this uh, Jurassic world, whatever, this kingdom. And they are going, they go nuts and we have to, you know, escape from them. Um, and I thought, okay, Jurassic world, they're out. They're finally out of the park. I'm like, so we don't have to have this, like, they're in the park. We're trapped in the park with them storyline thing. Um, I'm like, we get to see it. This is the movie we've been wanting to see since the end of the second movie. Like, that was really cool. Like, this is the movie. This is a Jurassic movie that's going to be unlike any of the other movies. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be us interacting with the dinosaurs. It's going to give us something that we've never seen before. We've never seen a movie that does this. And instead, (laughs) they put all the the animal the the dinosaurs into a refuge and and they get trapped in that park with or trapped in the refuge with the dinosaurs and they have to get out it's like they made the same movie again they figured out a way to make the same movie again and i'm just like stop making nobody wants to see this movie anymore um we're tired it's sort of like zombie movies it's like you can only do that like one time it's, and it just wears zombies and dinosaurs now are about the same thing, right? I mean, I think there is something, though, about the, the base under siege thing that they were doing, you know, for so long. That formula works no matter what the, the movie is. You can repeat it all the time and people go see it. I would almost rather see a redo of the first movie where, like, they just have different ways of the dinosaurs to sneak up on people than see them clumsily handle them out in the real world. Right. Um, it's like, if you're going to put them out in the real world, use them, do well, something interesting with it. Yeah. Because I thought in the, the trailer certainly makes it look the teaser trailers and everything certainly make it look like the world's in chaos, that there's dinosaurs all over the place. People are running for their lives. I mean, it's, there's a huge impact that the dinosaurs have had on the planet but once the movie starts you're like oh i they they're just an inconvenience they're like just in the way like in the road sometimes where you have to like get around them they're traffic hazards or something and it's just like you know occasionally one breaks out and eats somebody uh but that's about it and i'm like like what they said like 30 some people die a year or something like that from from dinosaurs and i'm just like really like that should be like like 300 million people die a year from dinosaurs like this is a huge impact it would have on this planet really and i didn't yeah i didn't think and i thought okay we're going to see all our characters come together and try to deal with the situation now that the world is being run by dinosaurs and and we didn't we didn't get that at all instead we've gotten some you know we got we went back to the same sort of well where it's the base under siege like escaping the park and and furthermore, we have this ridiculous like locust story that nobody really like. I I don't. How can you invent? You want to see dinosaurs? You don't want to see big grasshoppers? It's like that. That's so disappointing. I will say I love the fact that they pulled off some of the stuff from the first movie again, and it didn't feel heavy handed. Like they're in the car upside down again. Sure, sure. You know, they're looking at the T Rex again. They had those little pangs of nostalgia. Oh, they even went back as far as the stupid shaving cream can from the first one. And they even took out the the bad guy the same way, you know, Newman from Seinfeld got, you know. uh, I like some of the callbacks. The one I think my favorite was uh, when um, one of the new characters uh, said to – uh grant alan grant uh you know do you know how much uh 
how much electricity was in the fences at Jurassic Park. And I'm like, he's like, yeah, we, we, I know. <laughs> like, like that, he knows firsthand how much, like, how much electricity was in those, uh, those fences. Um, what, uh, all right. So I think we've all expressed our disappointment. Is, was there something that you liked about this movie, Ashley? Was there something that really, uh, that you did like or admire, enjoy? Yeah, I really liked seeing Blue the raptor again. I really liked that dinosaur character. And the baby raptor was just adorable. I really liked seeing the baby raptor. I was kind of disappointed that we didn't see more of raptor in baby raptor, especially since that should be like a merchandising like gold mine there. But <laughs> like we want to see the baby raptor. But Like and- baby Yoda? Yeah, exactly. So I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get to see more of it, but I really liked that seeing the that interaction and bringing that back. And I mean, it's always great to see the classic T-Rex again, even though like we've seen T-Rex fight other dinosaurs in kind of the same way in past movies, it was always good to see that dinosaur again. So I feel like, yeah, the moments with the dinosaurs I enjoyed seeing, but there was um, a surprising absence of those kind of moments for a movie for this franchise. Mm. Rob, was there something that you liked, enjoyed about the movie? You know, I have to say there's, there's certain times in a movie though, where you just sort of, where, where they do something that gets you. Right. And for me, when they cut to Sam Neill for the first time and you hear just a snippet, like a, 15 second snippet of the classic theme with him it's mm-hmm. like okay that that was like the one time i felt some sort of connection between the movies right mm-hmm. um i enjoyed seeing all of them even the sort of like it's like you know they sort of were like really enjoyed falling back into the routine oh here he goes again right you know um with, with malcolm you know i i really liked how they just sort of all felt comfortable and it didn't feel forced with those guys coming back, like in some of the movies, when they bring back old characters, it seems very sort of rigid. And they seemed pretty funny and pretty realistic. I will say that I'm, I'm hoping this means we see more of Sam Neill. Um, and I want a beard like that. Great. I want a yeah. beard like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I'm trying. <laughs> I just, I'm trying. Come on. <laughs> I, I, liked, I liked the T-Rex still. I, You know, when they try to do these weird hybrid dinosaurs, you know, it's just kind of like... Why am I running home to look up dinosaurs? You know, I'm not 12 anymore, you know, but uh, I like sort of seeing the classic old school dinosaur. Like, okay, there's a Bronto. I know what these are. That's a Brontosaurus. That's a Stegosaurus. That's a Triceratops. Great. You know, it was just cool to see that. And it was nice to see um, sort of when they did the patches of the old film. I like that. And I, I think Mike touched upon this earlier. I really liked that sort of beginning montage that they did, um, like sort of the catch up. Like, there's dinosaurs; they're everywhere. You know, I just wanted like little random clips of like that. You know, just like I want to watch a reality show with like just dinosaurs walking around now, <laughs> rather than that movie. Um, so yeah, I, I, the big things for me were the classic cast and and the music. And I have to say, given what he was had to work with, right. Campbell Scott was a pretty effective bad guy. I, you know, given sort of these really sort of shallow, opaque parameters for a character, mm-hmm. he kind of made it work. Yeah i I think he did a I think he did a decent job not being a parody of the things that Mike Mike posted. Like Mike Mike talked about, um, you know, how he's obviously 
you know, modeled on Steve Jobs and and uh, and Bill Gates to an extent, and that kind of elite corporate mentality, right? Um, and we saw it parodied really well in that uh, that Netflix movie. I can't think of the name of it, but but it, this sort of seemed like that as well, but less less of a caricature and more of a character. Mm-hmm. I thought I got I did get some. Uh, some more vibes from that. Mike, what, what was something that, was there anything that you liked in this movie? Oh, there's quite a bit I did like in it. Like that it ended. No. <laughs> wow. No. Um, truthfully, I, I enjoyed the chemistry between the three originals. It was awesome. Um, when Sam Neill's character was teaching or showing the people about the archaeological dig and everything, I thought that was just awesome and you know you could tell they were students because they were playing around on their phones and everything and you know it was typical but then when ellie showed up it was when you the scene first scene between the two of them it was just like wow that's awesome and jeff goldblum jeff goldblum's jeff goldblum in every movie he does you know and but he was awesome he was awesome in it as Malcolm. And I enjoyed seeing the three of them. Truthfully, when the three of them showed up, I forgot all about the other characters, you know, because I cared about these characters. And these were the more, the, the characters I was more vested in. I wasn't vested in the others. And, you know, I enjoyed that. One of the other things I liked about it was, you know, you had them all fitting into the typical roles with it. And you didn't have, you know, you didn't have, you know, them going in uncomfortable places and everything. Like I said earlier, this felt very formulaic, but there was some good formulaic in a good way with this. And the with the original characters, I thought worked perfectly if i could have seen a movie with them and not with the the newer ones i would have been fine with it and i would have been more riveted with this storyline and you know the dinosaurs i thought were third row characters behind the locust and then the main character because it focused on oh they kidnapped the girl and they you know they took the baby raptor and that was it was just like Where's the dinosaurs? The dinosaurs are what I'm watching Jurassic World for, not, you know, a kidnapping story of this clone. And and that's, I think, what was the problem in the last movie is because they touched too much on the clone again. You know, in that movie, you know, what was different about this girl? What, you know, why does she seem familiar? That type of thing. And it it was continued into this movie. And I didn't need to see that in all truth. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, I, uh, as much as I enjoyed seeing the old cast and even to an extent, um, Claire and Owen, I, I do like them. Uh, but, um, to me, um, the highlight of, uh, the movie was, uh, Kaya Watts played by DeWanda Wise. I, I thought she was a breath of fresh air in this movie. Um, I, I mean, I guess it wasn't until like they did like group shots and I'm like, wow, I just never realized like 
how white bread the Jurassic movies were like, like it's just full of all these just like, you know, uh, the white people and, and not that that's a, like, you know, whatever, take what it take as it, as it will. Um, but I just thought, you know, it's nice to have somebody in there that just is, has a different backstory that has a different angle and a different attitude to these uh, creatures and to what's going on with the world. And I was like, that's, she's the one I want to hang out with. She's the one that got stuff done. Um, and I really appreciated her as a care, as a new character. Like, you know, if they do continue these line of movies in any sort of shape, way, form, I, that she's the character I want to be with, uh, that I would like say you can jettison everybody else, but she is the character that I would like want to hang out with. Um, everything else. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 the other thing about it is you kind of mentioned it about, um, about the scene, the new characters or the old characters with the new characters, especially when it comes to Malcolm, there were a couple times where I actually thought that Malcolm was going to get dead. <laughs> I thought, I thought they might actually kill him and, and they didn't. Uh, and I, but I, I don't, there was a couple times where I, it hit my brain that they might, but I never really felt that any of the main characters in this were any in any danger whatsoever. And when your movie is 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 sort of based on like putting your characters through all these dangerous situations, when you don't feel, I don't think anybody really, you know, had uh, there were any sort of ramifications. Even the the threatening, nice idea of the uh, what the raptors or whatever that were like uh, trained to uh kill on on if you were marked oh with the laser contact yeah uh, although i just kept telling them like take off your shirt you'll be fine like <laughs> the confused like what where <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> just take off the shirt and then leave that behind uh and the raptors would just be like yeah go up to the shirt um but uh but that just was a stunt that was just used once and it really like nobody died from it like i just thought at least none of the characters the name characters that we knew um, and that, you know, I think you're, if you want to build tension, there's got to have to be some consequences. There's going to have to be, and, and really, you know, I thought it, it, that, that one scene where Malcolm kind of, you know, puts himself as a distraction, I thought maybe he was going to, that would have surprised me. And that would have actually given this movie more weight and more points with me, but obviously they, they didn't do that. Did you guys feel the same way? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I didn't no want to one, see my favorite character, yeah. eaten, but I think when you think back to other movies like The Force Awakens, like Spider Man No Way Home, I mean, nobody wants to see Han Solo die, nobody wants to see Aunt May die, but those moments lent a lot of weight to those movies. So I think if we had seen one of the legacy characters die, or even one of the newer characters, that would have really nailed home how serious this is and even- would have made the movie unique. Even some of the sub characters of the new ones, like the pilot, or one of the the guy who was the the feet, the agent feet, or whatever, you know, it would have been great to see one of them because it got way too top heavy. Or even B D Wang's character, yes. yeah, you know, <laughs> you know it, it would have been you know something. You know, I was waiting for somebody at the end. You know, during even during the big battle between the T Rex and that other two monsters, you know, it was just like 
it would have been great to see one of them just swing around, get hit by a tail or something by accident, or the, one of the, mon- the, the dinosaurs turn around, chomp, and take one of them out or something as they're running for the jet. And they go, oh, my God, you know. But, you know, we come on, come on, we got to go, you know, like they're fighting for, you know, Ben Kenobi or something, you know. Come on, you got to go, you know. So, and it was, but you didn't get that. And it there was no weight to it. It's like, oh, all these stars, these big names. They'll be fine, you know, and everything. And it's true. Yeah. Did you have a thought there, Rob? You know, my biggest thing that drove me nuts, well, one of the, a couple, but the fact that they sort of decided to make B.D. Wong have a salvation when I would have rather just after years of survival, liked to have seen him die. <laughs> um, it just, I think, would have been a nice sort of um, way to end it. But I, I was kind of amazed at just how underused Chris Pratt was. Mm. Um, it just, you know, for a guy that's supposed to be Chris Pratt and supposed to be really good, he's not doing a whole lot here. I mean, the whole standing around and moving your fist and making the dinosaurs obey you thing is pretty funny for about 10 minutes. But, you know, he's either the concerned dad or he's like making hand puppets, you know? I mean, it's it's kind of weird how, how much they didn't use Chris Pratt, you know? Um, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think that he doesn't really do much uh, without assistance, for sure. Um, although I guess the main storyline of saving Blue's kid, uh, Beta, is that right? Yes. Uh, is uh, Was the main one for him. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, everybody had their little, little story. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely thought that Somebody, I don't know. I even the T Rex doesn't get killed. Like I thought, I when I was actually stunned at the end when after they did that, you know, vanity shot of the logo in, in life, you know, like it played out. Um, it's like, aha! Uh-huh, I saw what yeah. you did there. <laughs> exactly, and then, you know, you expect that from the Jurassic World movies because they're they always do like you know objects are closer than they they, they they do some fun stuff. They have some fun with it, which I like. I, that's fine. Um, but the T-Rex is always, I mean, it's not the same T-Rex, but this, the T-Rex is, this, is always like a big deal when it comes to the Jurassic Park movies, um, and into Jurassic World. Um, and here, of course, you know, he goes up against something that's bigger and badder and, uh, and you think he's killed. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of understated. Um, thinking to myself, oh, that's because they're bringing him back. And they sure enough, like he just gets up like there's nothing wrong with him and and goes on. And it's just like, yeah, there was just no no sense of uh, danger in any like with any of the characters, despite the fact that there was a lot of lethal ones coming at them. Uh, nobody even got like a broken arm or anything. Like it's just like nothing. <laughs> uh, I mean, if I'm tumbling down a car, going, you know, rolling down a hill, I'm probably going to have at least something broken. So no, uh, no, ble- no bleeding skin, you know, nothing. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. This did feel a little cheaper than some of the other Jurassic movies. Uh, the the CG seemed a little off in some places to me, and I don't usually. I'm not bothered by that usually, but. There was well, a couple times where I was like, I don't think this is as nice as as rendered as it as well as it could be. When Goldblum was on um, Fallon last week, he was talking about that they relied more on animatronics for this movie 
than any of the other ones. So I think the fact that they were so focused on using animatronics for the focus, mm-hmm. for the you know for the close up stuff that they kind of got away from making the other stuff work that was gotcha. digital. Yeah, you know, I could see that. You know, and, and unfortunately, some of the the puppets did not look that great yeah. i don't think they're not as detailed as i think they could have. you know and I, I i have to wonder like how 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 much more reduced was the effects department for this movie because of covid rather than you know any other movie this is the first time i've gone to a movie or watched a movie anywhere and seen like this long list of like covid assisted gaffer covert mm-hmm. covid you know just like the long list of like covid related people yeah you know you're like Wow, I didn't really love this movie, but now I kind of want to like it just because all the friggin' COVID people they have, right? Yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's still like you know, I'm I'm coming down really hard on it because I expected a lot more. Yep. Uh, really, um, but you know, I think it was okay. You know, I you know we'll get into our final ratings at the end, but I, I think it was okay, and it was certainly better than. You know, um, uh, some of the Dean Emmerich movies, you know, that that if they were in charge of this franchise, it would be a real big train wreck. But I'm sorry, Mike, you were going to say? No, I was agreeing with what everybody was saying. But, you know, think about how momentous of a task this was to actually integrate more dinosaurs with more actors in everyday settings than, you know, just building a jungle set or you know, items like that, like they've done in the past movies, like they had their islands or they had their amusement parks or such. This was, you know, building, you know, having to fight dinosaurs in an Arabian city or, you know, having to, you know, have dinosaurs running through, you know, through the woods, you know, in a winter climate, which don't get me started about, you know, cold-blooded reptiles in, you know, in the snow. I kept snow. waiting for an explanation for that, but I guess, like... No. It, like, we weren't going to get it. It was like, okay, I guess, I guess <laughs> no, they could live in... I'm, I'm sure Neil deGrasse Tyson was like, ah, I'm throwing it out the window. <laughs> yeah, <this> yeah. Science. <laughs> I mean, we know that they've been messing with the DNA, mm-hmm. so... You know, if if someone had said just one line to say like, oh, the DNA, we've altered the DNA so they could, uh, you know, they can adapt to any climate. I would have been like, OK, that's, you know. But it's also a dinosaur I didn't recognize as an actual dinosaur. Mm. I think that was sort of like some weird, I think, you know. And they were definitely trying to, you know, show that some of the dinosaurs had, you know, had feathers and stuff too. Yes. Know. Yeah. I noticed that this time they seemed like they were really going that route. And it, it, it's almost like, I feel like they're maybe running low on different types of dinosaurs to like present to us because, you know, they're like, that's the, what is it? The gynome, gynosaurus or something like that. The, the ginomerosaurus, like, like, okay, you're just making that up now. Like, yeah. that's not really. Like, the pyroraptor. Like, I'm like, I'm oh, like, I want to see that. <laughs> like, are you just making this stuff up or, you know, what? Or uh, even if they, even if they said a throwaway line, like, there are some dinosaurs we just can't clone. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in today's environment, there's just certain ones that can't survive, you know, and I would have, it would have been just like a throw off explanation, but nope, unless I was caught on the floor somewhere, you know. 
All right. The first Jurassic Park movie, as amazing as it is technically and as thrilling as it is, both the way it's written and the way it's directed by Spielberg and the music and everything that came together to make that such a classic movie. It is a cautionary tale at its, at its heart, right? That's what it is. It's telling you like, don't mess with this stuff. Um, the, the message has gotten kind of muddled, I think over the course of these uh, Jurassic movies, how well do you think that this movie uh, does as a cautionary tale and and what do you think it's trying to caution us against uh ashley well i think yeah you have a good point about that initial message being watered down because i think it could have had a lot more impact if they'd gone with what i was originally thinking this movie was going to be is basically dinosaurs running wild across the earth and everything is now off balance. I feel like that's a more logical conclusion of where you take from the first movies. Like these creatures went extinct. You're messing with things you shouldn't. You've brought them back. And this park has gone wrong. If they get out into the world, then things are going to go even more wrong. So I, and I feel like there wasn't necessarily consequences for some of the things that people had done. I mean, they kind of brought up the cloning with um, the girl, but didn't necessarily go in with that. There was just like a lot of um, things going on with this movie. I felt like they didn't necessarily follow up on all of those. So I feel like there's definitely a more streamlined way that they could have tied up or brought to conclusion the message of the first movie. Rob, what do you think? You know, I think that their intent was to show how all these different things are, are connected right? That ecological disasters and extinctions and, you know, messing with genetics is all connected. And then throw in climate change as well, right? I'm okay if they put that stuff in there. But where I think they got everything lost is, okay, you're dealing with all the sciencey stuff, right? Diminishing food supply, you know, climate control or climate change and you know, what we do about genetics, right? That's fine if it's just that. But then on top of it, and, and again, I'm not saying that this is wrong, but on top of it, you're adding, you know, corporate greed, consumerism, and um, just all, it, it's it's clunky. Like you can't throw that many messages at people, right? I mean, the, the, the flat earthers are already popping their eyeballs out of their head already. And you, you don't need to kill them, right? Um so I think that it tried to really throw every sort of political and scientific issue of our time into a two and a half hour movie. And I think if they just would have left with, Hey, we have climate change and we have issues with tampering with the food supply. They could have connected that to the issues of the diet. Like the brontosauruses are going to eat up, you know, half of the Ukrainian wheat anyway. So why do you have locusts? Um, so there's a lot of that stuff that they could they could have really explored had they had other times. If they just didn't even use the girl as a clone, you know, the story itself is like there's a guy who wants to, like, bring them all back and corporatize them. There's your movie. You don't need to have the clone, the girl mm-hmm. running around in the woods with, you know, the guy in the grunge band chasing them. Um, huh. yeah, I, so there's a lot of stuff you could really do with it that they sort of missed their mark on. Um it was kind of like a choose your own adventure book where they give you every adventure to choose all at once. Mm, nice to put. 
Yeah, nicely put. I like that. Mike, that how do you feel about that? About the Choose Your Own Adventure? I think it's fantastic. Great. <laughs> it would have made a much better movie, truthfully. And I thought... I really think they just said, all right, let's look at the last five movies. Let's take the best parts of it and let's rehash it into this film. And I don't didn't feel like there was really any originality to it. I didn't really think it was all that exciting. And there were nowhere near as much as many dinosaurs as I wanted to see in this. If I weren't going to pay whatever I paid for to see a dinosaur movie, I don't want to watch the story about a clone and giant locusts, you know, taking over the world. That's a different movie. You know, I want to see Jurassic World. I want to see all these dinosaurs tied in with, you know, society today. Because the way they made the preview sound was... This is an extinction event. This is what's going to kill. Making it assume that it was the dinosaurs taking over, killing off all of humanity, and destroying everything. But no, it wasn't even anywhere near that. The dinosaurs were not even the threat in this movie. And no, that's not, like I said, they become like zombies, really. Yeah. Like, in, like you know, by the whatever, you know, the season of uh, Walking yeah. Dead, it's like zombies, like, like it's not a thing, right? No, exactly. And literally, it almost felt like these dinosaurs were automatronic or something. They were just, okay, turn around, reset, you know, boom, start over, to, you know, like you're going to Disney or something. But this, this wasn't don't waste your money, folks. <laughs> Just don't it's, waste uh, your money. It really seemed to me that one of the cautionary tales that was up for like a huge debate in the first Jurassic Park movie was the subject of cloning, period. And I did feel like in this movie, it's just like, no, it's cool. Like, cloning's good. Like, it, there was no really discussion about the pros and cons. It seemed like it was more of a pro movie, pro cloning movie than anything. Um, am I wrong? Did you guys get that impression too? Yeah, I was also a little disappointed there wasn't more discussion. I mean, you have the uh, mother that basically alters her daughter's entire G DNA and like no bad consequences came from that. I just feel like, again, if people are going to mess with stuff like that, if this is the first time this has been done on the planet and nothing went wrong, like none of that genetic change had any kind of ill effects. It just seemed like it was a little too simple. Do you think that the times that we live in, it reflects the times that we live in that now we don't consider cloning as much of a threat as we did decades ago when the first movie came out? I think that they dumbed it down so much that they didn't think. Gotcha. Um, I was really hoping that, again, I mean, I, I made it clear that I was hoping for a different kind of movie. Um, one of my, I don't want to say favorite, but one of the most, uh, inspirational, uh, bits that I feel like George Carlin did in his last, uh, few specials before, um, the end was, uh, talking about how, you know, especially when it comes to like save the planet, people who say save the planet, save the planet, save the planet, do this, save the planet. The planet is going to be fine, right? The whole thing is like the planet's not going anywhere. Like, we are the ones who should be concerned with our place in it. Like, and, and the dinosaurs were around for a lot longer than we were, than we have been so far, I should say. Um, and 
and and reintroducing them to our our ecosystem would be catastrophic and i feel like we would be uh in at the verge of extinction ourselves at least on the way like if we're talking about an extinction event i would think that we would be looking at ourselves like going oh crap like you know i i think this movie would have been a lot more impactful would a lot been a lot more of a cautionary tale if it had been like a sort of planet of the dinosaurs, not to say mm-hmm. that the dinosaurs all get together and make a park with humans in it. Like, I don't want to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> although, although what a great reversal that would be. Like the, the last shot of Jurassic World Dominion is, is like, Hey, the dinosaurs are in control and the humans are like, you know, little slaves or whatever for the, for the dinosaurs. Uh, but I, I, I feel like that would have made more of an impact to say like this, you know, this, the stuff that we think is important may not be as important as we think it is, or some of it, our priorities are kind of screwed up with what we consider important and what we don't. Um, and this movie doesn't really do tackle that discussion at all. So, well, I think too, this movie is made more for a foreign market than any of the ones before it. That's fair. That's fair. And I think that influences how far they're willing to go with the messaging. That's a good point. That's a good point. Because do you, do you feel like as far as the foreign market goes, they just want to see like cool dinosaur CGs and some thrilling action and, and they're good with that? I think that, you know, movies now are so, so more heavily funded by, by China, for example, or in terms of like the, in some way, shape or form, or their market is so big for people going to movies because they haven't stopped during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Going to movies that it's, it's such a huge international market that they can't ignore it. The Asian market between Japan and China and Southeast Asia is so big um, that they kind of, to a certain extent, have to pander to it because they know that next week they got light year coming, but man, next week we're opening in wide release in Asia and we want that to blow up, so let's not go, you know, too big on it. And 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 as far as you know, as far as the box office goes, it's doing twice as well overseas as it is here. So yeah. I mean, which is you know standard, but um, I don't think it's opened in China yet. They're still having uh, issues with that market, I think, and getting films over there. But I mean, yes. It, it will. It, it opened actually is odd because this movie opened in Mexico city, which I think is unusual, but, uh, and it started in South Korea as well. So, um, that's an odd choice, but to your point, Rob, it's, it looks like they're, they're targeting the, the world market more than just the American. Market. And it also depends on who's funding it. You know, sometimes it depends on a movie getting funded, you know, Mike might fund $8 million for a movie, but he wants it to screen first in his house before, you know, <laughs> somewhere true. else. You well, know? duh, come on. <laughs> I, Mike, you had that kind of cash, really? Of course. All right. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk later then, because uh, I need a raise, man. Um, I'll double your pay right now. <laughs> nice. Um, also, my understanding is that the film is scheduled to stream on Peacock. Within four months of this release, uh, as part of an 18-month deal, it's then going to be it's going to be on Amazon Prime Video for a few months, and then it's going to return to Peacock, and then it's going to be available on Stars or whatever. But it's obvious to me that pretty soon it's going to be streaming. People are going to be able to watch it from their homes. 
does that is that still a factor now more than ever of people not coming out and seeing this movie? I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, people just don't know how to go to movies anymore. They don't have any cultural connection to going to a movie, you know? So. Yeah. It does seem like the, the times I've been to the theater, it seems like people have forgotten, like they're just talk and they just do whatever. And it's just like, it's not your living room people. Like this is different. Like, um, but, uh, yeah, we got out of some, we may go, we got some bad habits to get rid of if, uh, we want to make the theater experience that cool, but you know, what would make going to movies more interesting if they let dinosaurs in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, then, basic, so basically not everyone goes into the theater, but not everyone comes out. Basically, uh, element they, of go danger. In, they go into the movie, right? They let the dinosaurs in, they close the movie. And then, and then that's way more exciting than watching the actual movie. Yeah, well, you got a point there. It's certainly the case of this one, I think. Um, all right, let's uh, get out of here and, and rate it real quick. Ashley, scale of one to five, what do you think? Man, I think I'm going to have to go with two and a half, which feels a little harsh, but I think there was just a movie in my mind that I was hoping to see, and that isn't what I experienced, and so it was hard for me to get past that. Is there a rewatch factor on this? I don't think so. It's one of those, like, if I'm going to, if I have a hankering for a dinosaur movie, I'm going to watch Jurassic Park or Jurassic World. Um, I don't necessarily see myself revisiting this one. Gotcha. Gotcha. Rob, what about you? Well, you know, the best Jurassic Park movie they ever made was The Flintstones. So <laughs> um, I'm going to give it about a three, mainly because, I mean, I went for the nostalgia factor more than anything else. Um, I kind of figured, okay, they're going to have six to eight people in the main cast. That means less dinosaurs. So I kind of expected less dinosaurs going in. Um, so I'm giving it a three, but surely based on the fact that the nostalgia of that old cast really worked. Mm-hmm. And that for a minute made me feel like it was 1995 again. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, what about you? <sighs> This is, I've been dreading this part all night, actually, from when I walked out of the theater. Um, I'm going to have to give this a one and a half. I can't recommend it. Even the chemistry between the original cast members and the likability of watching them again, that brought it up from a one, truthfully. You know, I was kidding at first when I said, you know, within 10, 15 minutes, I was looking at my watch, looking at my phone, you know, within 40 minutes of it, I was deleting emails and stuff while watching the movie. And, you know, there was maybe six people in the theater when I saw it today. And it was just, it, it wasn't enjoyable. And, you know, I was glad there was no after credit scene, so I didn't have to wait for, you know, to stay until the after. Oh, that. you missed that? No, I checked before. So no. that was one of the things I looked up while I was watching the movie. So there you go. <laughs> well, uh, I like I said, I always stay for the credits, too, because I will say, and as I was watching the credits, I was thinking... You know, as much as this movie disappointed me, I will give it a grade of of three because I think everybody pretty much did their job. Like everybody did a good job. Like I, you know, I'm not faulting any. I'm not faulting any of the actors. I think they did what they could with the material. 
the director made it, you know, a, a competent movie. Um, I thought the score, I, boy, I usually love Michael Giacchino, but damn, I didn't, I felt like, well, I'll tell you what, that can sum up my real feelings about this movie because the score was decent and, and, and thrilling in parts, but it really only worked for me when it tapped into the John Williams theme and otherwise it felt flat. Like it just felt like, and the, the rest of this movie as, as thrilling as, as it was supposed to be. It just felt flat to me. And when I think about the potential of what this movie could have been, then, you know, that's a that's a score of a one, really, because this could have been so much more. And I think they really blew an opportunity here. And I don't know what's next for this franchise, but I think that Universal and them are going to have to think long and hard before they continue with this. So we'll see what happens. It'll probably just reboot, um, you know, uh, with Jurassic Park again and Jurassic Babies. Jurassic babies. Yeah, right. I mean, I think I think it's done though. I, I yeah. really it really I felt the finality to it, right? I, I think they've milked this one as much as they can. So I, I think so. As have we. So uh thank you guys uh for joining us uh for the review and we'll be right back to close out the show. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about Jurassic World Dominion. So, I was rather scared about going to see the new Jurassic World movie. I had heard just bad things from all of those around me about it, but I am always one to make my own opinion about movies, and I absolutely love the Jurassic movies altogether. I will say the second Jurassic World movie is last on my ranking of all the films. I can pretty much say the original film word for word every time I watch it, which is a lot because it comes on TV a lot. And it's just one of those few childhood memories that I remember vividly of my grandmother taking me to the theater in 1993 to watch this movie about dinosaurs from this book that I was way above my reading level, but I still read because it was about dinosaurs. And I was absolutely obsessed with dinosaurs since I was a super small child and the land before time came in my life. So I was pumped about this movie. I may get some hate for this, but I enjoyed Jurassic World Dominion. It was exactly what I expected it to be, a film giving the Jurassic film series an ending while also merging old and new together for what we believe to be the final time. I liked the different stories of each character. We had a lot of separate stories that all came together and kept you interested in what was happening. I loved the return of Dr. Grant, Dr. Sattler, and Malcolm. And truthfully, giant locusts are terrifying. So while they are also hokey, they are still terrifying. Don't tell me that you would not want to see one of those on your porch because those things were scary. I loved getting to see all the dinosaurs and the human interactions with them as well as the big fight at the end because we all know we were all just there to see a T-Rex fight. That is the only reason we are going to these movies. We want to see dinosaurs fight and dinosaurs interact and just look super pretty, but we know that final fight, we were all rooting in there. 
We were all, we were, that's what we were there for. Would this rate high in my Jurassic film ratings? No. Did it rate better than Jurassic World 2? Oh yeah. I enjoyed this film so much more than Jurassic World 2. The story flowed, it gave us an ending, which is really all I could have asked for after where the second one left off. Thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. If you were a monster kid growing up, if you enjoyed Saturday mornings watching monster movie matinee, or staying up all night watching the midnight feature, then Monster Attack is the podcast for you. We not only look at classic old monster movies, we share our experience growing up as a monster kid. Join us every Monday for Monster Attack. So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Let's thank our guests for being here. Rob, it's been a while, but we're so glad to have you for tonight's discussion. No, thank you for having me. Anything you want to shout out about, my friend? Um, so I would be remiss if you uh, did not check out uh, the other ESO-affiliated podcast that I'm on with uh, Sir Anthony Williams and uh, um, A-Dubs and uh, the Alan Siler uh, called modern musicology you can find it on this network so please listen a great great show on eso and it's been a great addition and you guys are doing awesome and it's a must listen to for me every week so it's pretty cool and of course ashley pauls thank you of course for joining oh thank you you guys are the best i always enjoy chatting movies with you all anything you want to shout out about yeah, just I'm continuing to uh, blog movie reviews uh, throughout the summer, and we've still got quite a few movies left to go, so hopefully some good ones still headed our way. Mm-hmm. And actually, later in the summer, you're going to actually pick a movie for us to review here. Yes, yes, Mark. I'm still pondering that, but I ho- I'll try to choose responsibly. Oh, very much so. So it'll be a ton of fun, and you know what? It's always great to have you, and thank you for the reviews you do on the ESO on the website. It's oh, awesome. Thank you. And Mr. Mike Gordon, another one under our belt, my friend. Yes, and as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? I do. I've been a little bit lax in, in shouting this out, and uh, uh, we kind of mentioned it. I think Mike brought it up uh, during the uh, Summer Box Office preview episode, but um, a movie that is still in theaters, uh, although Jurassic World did knock a lot of movies off out of theaters. So it may not be in as many theaters as it was, but it's been around for about a month now. Uh, but is one I think everybody should try to check out if they can. I still have to get to it myself, so I'm guilty as anybody because it hasn't done the best in box office. But it is a uh, sort of documentary called Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story. Um, it is directed, co-directed by Frank Marshall and uh, Ryan Suffren, and Ryan is my cousin. And so I am oh. very pleased to him for him to have this uh this is probably uh, maybe the most one of the most successful things that he's done um, as far as co-directing and directing. And uh, I'm really happy for for him. I know he's been having showing pictures of him uh, at uh, various festivals and whatnot. It's pretty and, great. Uh, and, and I've heard nothing but good things about it. I mean, they might not be doing well box office-wise, uh, but I've heard nothing but good things about it uh, from everybody who's seen it. 
So the reviews are great. I think it's one of those movies that it's tough, especially this day and age, it's tough to get people to go to the movies to see a concert film. Um, but it is something that I really am looking forward to seeing and I'm really happy for him. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. It's still on my list to see and hopefully I can try to catch it at the theaters before it's gone. Cause I love going to see concert films on the big screen because it gives you the feel of being there. And speaking of being there, I went to go see some live music last night, a matter of fact. And you know, it was awesome to be able to go see Tears for Fears, a band I f- first saw back in 1986. Of all years. So Ashley was just not even a glimpse in her mom and dad's eyes at that point. But, you know, it was, it was awesome um, to see them again and the energy and getting the crowd. This was our first really big concert that we've been to this since COVID. And it was outdoors. So I didn't feel that, you know, that much in danger or anything like that. And we kept our distance and stuff, but it was, it was almost a sold out, um, pavilion, uh, show. The lawn was filled. People were dancing. People were enjoying themselves and it was awesome. And they actually had the band garbage actually open for them. And it was a ton of fun. And, um, you know, when we saw hollow notes last year, um, it was at the same location, but it was only half filled. They didn't fill the lawn or anything like that. And Hall and Oates only played for a little over an hour when we saw them. Squeeze, who opened for them, uh, performed a little bit longer than the main act. But for this show, um, it started at 7.30, um, and Garbage played for about 45 minutes. I forgot they had done a, a Bond theme. And, you know, it was they were a ton of fun to see. But um, when Tears for Fears came on at 9 o'clock, I thought, oh, they'll be done by 10. They didn't stop playing until almost 11. And it was awesome. And, you know, these guys are not young chickens anymore. These guys are, you know, probably mid-60s at least. And it was – they performed. They were all over the stage. They they had a genuinely good time. And it was it was just a ton of fun to go see. So, folks, live music is back. And some of the best ways to be able to see some awesome things from small little venues and small bands to these – larger stadiums or, you know, pavilions for this outdoor concerts and stuff. Highly recommend if you do get a chance to do it. And then of course, music festivals are big time in gear right now. And, you know, Judy and I are actually considering maybe going to another music festival at the end of July. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see, but you know what? Speaking of waiting to see, we will be back again next week. And we're going back to the movies once again. So, Ashley, I guess you're camping out in the uh, station this week. Sounds good. <laughs> I'll just hang around here, see if I can find any food in the fridge to, well, to tide me over. Oh, well, you know, we could always go from infinity to be and beyond because we're going to be talking all about Lightyear. That's right. It's the new Pixar movie is here. And this one looks a lot of excitement to it. And... God, please be good, because I can't handle two bad movies in a row. I really can't. Um, But you know what? It's going to be a ton of fun to see Buzz, and the premise actually has my interest up compared to what originally I thought it was going to be. So 
definitely please join us next week. It's going to be a ton of fun. As always, please leave feedback for us wherever fine podcasts are found. Or if you want to write us, feedback at earthstation1.com. It always is great to hear from you guys. And thanks for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. We're powered by NSC. You can find that at nsclivetv.com. Remember, you can also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found, now including TuneIn Radio and Pandora. Please subscribe and tell all your friends about us. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Mr. Mike Gordon, Mr. Rob Levy, and of course, Ashley Pauls, thanks for listening, and we will see you here next time on Earth Station One. Stay safe, hug your loved ones, and you know what? Just try to have some fun. It's summer. Let's try. And we'll see you next time. Peace. And we are done. Boom. Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark. All the dinosaurs are running wild. Someone shut the fence off in the rain. I admit it's kind of eerie, but this proves my chaos theory. And I don't think I'll be coming back show's over. It's time to head home. See you next week here at Station One. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.